Well, good evening again. It's great to be here with you. Murray Smith is my name, in case you didn't catch it before. Please keep your Bible open there at 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, because that's uh, the passage we'll be working from this evening. And let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are the God of all grace. And in your wonderful mercy, you've taken us who are not a people and made us your people. You've taken us who were lost in sin and in darkness and you've welcomed us into your family. You've taken us who did not belong and you're building us together into a spiritual temple where you dwell by your spirit. You've taken us who were distorted and corrupted by our sin and you're making us new. And we praise you, Father, because you've done all of that in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the work of your Spirit in our lives. And so we pray tonight, as we come to your word here in 1 Peter 2, that you will open our ears and help us to hear what you have to say to us, that you'd soften our hearts and make us ready to believe you, and that you'd send us out from here, ready to live for you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's something about being human, isn't there? That means we like to build big stuff. It goes way back, as far as I can trace it, all the way back to the Great Pyramid of Giza, which was built sometime around the year 2560 BC, and which at its time was the tallest, the largest building in the world at 146 metres. It's enormous. In fact, it wasn't topped until more than 3,000 years later, in the year 1,311, when they finally finished building the towers on Lincoln Cathedral in the UK, and they added an extra 14 metres, made it up to 160 metres in height. The next big leap forward was 1889, of course, with the Eiffel Tower there in Paris, taking the tallest building in the world to 300 metres, almost doubling the record, And from there, the race was really on. And I won't go through all the details in the 19th and 20th centuries, but one of the standouts, perhaps you've been there, was 1975 with the CN Tower. There it is, uh, in Toronto, Canada, at an incredible 553 metres high. Recently topped, of course, in 2010 by the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, at a massive 829 metres and 80 centimetres in height. It's awesome. There's something about being human, isn't there? There always has been. It seems that we want to build something big. But, of course, it's not just in the competition to build the tallest tower that we notice this. It's in a whole bunch of different ways. We want to be where the action is. We want to be part of something significant, We want to be caught up in something that really matters. And the problem for us in the church is that in the world's eyes, and often even to us, what goes on in here, what happens in the church, seems by contrast to what's going on out there, small and weak and insignificant. I'm not just talking about the size of our buildings, of course, You feel it when you're watching the TV and uh, perhaps you're watching Q&A on the ABC and you notice that the Christian voices are marginalised and undermined and ridiculed. Maybe you feel it in conversations at work or at uni or at school. 
where Christian perspectives say on same-sex marriage are treated as outdated and irrelevant or even bigoted and immoral. You feel it in another way when your kid's soccer team gets scheduled a game for Sunday morning without even a thought being given to the fact that some members of the team might have another commitment on a Sunday morning because church is just so insignificant you wouldn't even factor it in. You feel it when you're at a dinner party and you say you're part of a Presbyterian church and they say, Presby what? And politely move the conversation on. Or you feel it when you go to the footy on a Saturday night, perhaps down at Stadium Australia, 80,000 voices strong, the atmosphere, the energy, the noise. And then you turn up to church on Sunday morning or Sunday evening and you're underwhelmed by the singing of, what, 60, 70 of us? In so many ways, compared to all the big, exciting stuff happening in wider society, it can seem like what's happening in the church is small and weak and insignificant. And the temptation when we feel like that is just to opt out of the church, to give our time and attention, our passion and our energy to things that seem more exciting, more significant. Maybe we don't opt out completely. We still turn up on Sundays. We sign up for the obligatory rosters. Perhaps we're even part of a small group. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think very often church doesn't grab us. It doesn't get the best of our attention. There are more exciting things happening at work and in family life than at church. And so when life is busy, something has to go. And, well, at least sometimes church is it. Despite what we might like to tell ourselves, the trends of how we spend our time and perhaps more tellingly the evidence of our bank statements reveal that church really is for us a relatively low priority in our lives. All too often the mission of the church is not our passion. But if we're feeling those temptations, we're not alone because the Apostle Peter was writing to a church of exiles. He calls them that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and I hope you've got your Bibles open there and you can look up some of these verses with me. Most likely the Christians who had been expelled, the Christians that Peter is writing to had been expelled from Rome, the capital of the empire, under the Roman Emperor Claudius in AD 49. They'd been relocated to Roman colonies in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Peter lists them for us at the opening of the letter. They're all in the part of the world that we would call Turkey. They were in churches that were well away from the centres of power and influence. They weren't in Jerusalem with its temple. They weren't in Rome with its powerful connections to the emperor. No doubt these exiles were feeling small and weak and insignificant, especially since they were also a church under fire, a church facing pressure and even persecution for their commitment to Christ. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 6. They were undergoing various trials, Peter says. Or 1, verse 7, they were being tested by fire. Or chapter 4, verse 12, they were in the midst of a fiery ordeal. Or chapter 4, verse 14, they were being ridiculed for the name of Christ. No doubt they felt the temptation, like we do, of opting out of church, of giving their time and their money and their attention to things that seem more significant, more powerful, and certainly things that are more socially acceptable. But God had good news for them through the Apostle Peter. Since we perhaps struggle with some of the same temptations, maybe God has good news for us here too. And the good news in this passage is that even though the church may look small and weak 
and insignificant, it is in fact the single largest, most significant, most powerful project the world has ever seen. So I want to encourage you this afternoon with two reasons from 1 Peter chapter 2, not only to stick with the church, but to throw yourself into the church's mission. And then I want to explore in a third point some of what it might look like to do just that. We're going to look at God's church as his new temple, God's church as the new humanity where God is making people new. And then we're going to look at how God's church shows the world how great God is by singing his praises and living his way. Uh, So let's get into it. God's church is his new temple, God's great building project. Let's pick it up at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, Peter writes, a living stone, rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see what Peter says? The church is a spiritual house. It's a temple. It's God's temple. It's where God has chosen to live in his world. All the way through the Bible, of course, God has been in the business of having temples built as the places where he should dwell with his people, bless them so they can be a blessing to others. Think right back to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden, which was kind of like a garden temple. There were gold and precious stones, there was a flowing river and God was there living with Adam and Eve in the garden, present with them to bless them and through them to be a blessing to the world. Think of the tabernacle that God commanded Moses to build in the wilderness after he rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. It was a kind of temple, a holy place where God dwelt with his people to bless them so that they might be a blessing to the nations round about. Think of the temple in Jerusalem that Solomon built, a holy place where God lived among his people and heard their prayers and blessed them so that they could be a blessing to others. All the way through the Bible, God has lived among his people in temples. But now, Peter says, now that Jesus has come, now that God's Holy Spirit has been poured out, The temple where God lives is not a tent in the wilderness, not a stone structure in Jerusalem. No, it's you, Peter says. You are God's temple. You are a spiritual house, you Christian believers. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You see, God's temple is no longer a physical structure made out of lifeless stones, but a living, breathing human community. I want you to notice who is doing the building here. It's God, isn't it, who is building this temple, who's engaged in this building project. Look at verse 5. You yourselves, Peter says, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Peter's speaking in the passive voice. He speaks not about, first and foremost, about what believers do to build God's temple, but about what God is doing to build them up to be this spiritual house. Yes, you've come to Jesus, Peter says, but you did that because God picked you up and built you into the wall of his temple. This whole church thing is God's project, first and foremost, not ours. And that's crucial because if it's God's project, it'll be no surprise if God is building it his way. 
according to his specifications. And so here's the key. God is building his church on a rejected cornerstone. Did you notice that in verse 4? As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Or again, verse 7, quoting from Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone, of course, is the first stone you lay when you're building something. It's the stone that sets the pattern for the rest. And Peter here is talking about Jesus, of course. Jesus who was chosen by God, precious to him, a living stone, living because he was raised from the dead. Jesus, the cornerstone, who sets the pattern for the rest. Jesus, who was rejected by the people. You see, God is building his church. He's building it his way. He's building it on the precious living cornerstone who was rejected by the builders, who was betrayed and despised and mocked and crucified, who looked small and weak and insignificant. And if he's the cornerstone, what does that tell you about the destiny of the church? God is also building his church out of a rejected people. Now, these Christians here to which Peter addresses his letter are exiles, he says. They've been cast out of Rome. They're far away from the centres of power. They're people who in the world's eyes are small and weak and insignificant. And when you think about it, that's how God has always worked, isn't it? God built his church not in the centre of power in Egypt at the time of Moses, but where? Well, in the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness, on the way to the promised land. God built his church not in the palaces of kings and princes at the time of King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian exile, but where? By the river Kibar, amongst those who'd been ejected from the promised land. God built his church in the first century, not in the Roman capital, but in the far-flung province of Palestine, among a despised race through a rejected Messiah who suffered a shameful death, Yes, Peter says to these Christian believers, you're not in Rome, you're not in Jerusalem, you're not in the centres of power of Australian society, you're exiles. And so you might feel small and weak and insignificant because in the world's eyes you are. You might wish that you were living and working where the action is because in the world's eyes you're irrelevant or a nuisance or even worse. But the truth is, The living God of all creation is building his church. He's constructing his temple. He's erecting the most magnificent, glorious structure the world has ever seen right here in your midst, right under your nose, even though it doesn't look that way right now. Even though it won't be revealed like that until the end. He's building it right here in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. He's building it right here in Cherrybrook and in Beecroft and in Chatswood, and in Epping, and in Hornsby. But there's more. God's church is not only his new temple, not only where he has chosen to dwell in his world, the second reason to throw yourself in to the church's mission is that God's church is God's new humanity, where God is making people new. Look at verse 9. You are a chosen race, Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you recognise the language here? This is all Israel language, isn't it? You are a chosen race. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. You are a treasured possession. This is exactly what God declared to Israel in our first reading when he gathered them at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Having rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, he brought them out from under the thumb of Pharaoh with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He brought them to himself and he declared to them that you are my chosen people. The whole earth is mine, but you are my treasured possession. And now Peter says, you exiles in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, you who have come to Jesus, the living stone, you're the heirs of those promises. You're taking up that role. The church is Israel renewed. But maybe you also hear some echoes here that go even further back in the Old Testament. They go all the way right back to the beginning because this is also Adam language. Adam was a holy person chosen by God as his representative in the world, wasn't he? Adam was a king. He was called to exercise dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. He was a priest called to stand in God's presence in the garden temple of Eden. He was God's treasured possession, the crowning glory of God's creative work. And now, Peter says, you exiles in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, you Christian believers in Beecroft and Cherrybrook and Epping and Hornsby, you've become heirs of those promises as well. You've taken up that role. The church is not only Israel renewed, It's staggeringly humanity renewed. The world will have you believe that the church is at best a sect that should have little or nothing to do with mainstream society or a club for those with religious inclinations or a niche group for those with some peculiar spiritual needs. But that couldn't be further from the truth, could it? In the church... God is rebuilding the human race from the ground up. I'll say that again. In the church, God is rebuilding the human race from the ground up. Nothing less. The church is God's new humanity. It's not that the church is made up of people who are better in and of themselves, as if Christians were somehow superhuman. You know that well, and I'm not talking about the person next to you. No, we were in darkness until God called us into his light, verse 9. We were lost in sin, deserving God's judgment, until God showed us mercy, verse 10. The church is God's new humanity because in his wonderful mercy he has rescued us. Like he rescued Israel with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm out of slavery in Egypt, he's rescued us from slavery to sin and death. He's forgiven our sins and he's qualified us who don't deserve it to be a kingdom of priests who stand in his presence. And so, like Peter says in verse 5, we can be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, the church is the community where people who are distorted and corrupted and downtrodden and broken because of sin, our sin and the sin of others, the church is the community where those people, by God's grace by being connected to Jesus, become fully human, become a kingdom of priests 
The church is the place where people who are twisted get straightened out, (laughs) where people who are sick get healed, where people who are old get made new. You might have heard what happened in Charleston, South Carolina on the 17th of June 2015, just over a year ago, uh, where there was an African-American church midweek Bible study group meeting around God's word and a young white supremacist walked into the room, joined the Bible study group with a shotgun concealed under his jacket and halfway through the Bible study group he pulled out the gun and he opened fire and he murdered nine people. You might have heard of that because it received relatively widespread attention in the media. What you might not have heard is that two days later, at the initial hearing into uh, the atrocity, the families of those who had been killed in that incident, one by one, stood up with tears in their eyes, grieving the loss of those they've loved, and declared to the guy who had murdered their mothers and husbands and wives and children, that they forgave him. Those were people with no earthly reason to forgive, were they? Many of them people with histories of generations of being mistreated at the hands of others. Many of them able to trace their ancestry back to being brought as slaves to the United States, of being downtrodden and used and abused with every reason in the world to hold a grudge. And yet here were people, two days after such horrific loss, willing to extend forgiveness. And you think, how is that possible? And the answer is, it's because that's what God is doing in the church. He is at work connecting people to Jesus, renewing them by his Holy Spirit, straightening them out, enabling them to stand tall again, making them fully human, making them like Jesus. That's what God is doing in the church. Not always under such extreme circumstances, but in big and small ways, God is making people new. This temple building, this life-renewing work, is never going to be glamorous in the eyes of the world. And in fact, if it starts to look that way, there's a good chance it started building on some foundation other than the rejected cornerstone, Jesus himself. But the work of the church, this temple building, this humanity-renewing work, is right at the centre of what God is doing in his world. So when you speak about Jesus at work or at school and get laughed at, When you hold on to God's teaching in his word about marriage and the world ridicules you. When you spend yourself for 10 snotty-nosed kids in Sunday school (laughs) instead of sleeping in on Sunday morning. When you give up your Friday nights to play your part in the youth group. When you take the time to visit the oldies from church to encourage them and to build them up in Christ. When you patiently use your gifts to serve week in, week out, year in, year out, even when no one notices, even when no one applauds, even when there are no Facebook likes, you've got to take heart because the chances are you're doing something right. The chances are God is at work through you to build his spiritual house, to make his people new. Chances are, although what you're doing looks small and weak and insignificant, chances are, though, it's not going to make the nightly news and many people aren't going to notice You are, in reality, as Peter puts it in verse 5, 
offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're being a part of what God is doing to build his spiritual house and make his people new. You are right at the centre of the action. So don't opt out. Press on. In fact, throw yourself in to the mission of the church because when you do that, you're not throwing yourself into some irrelevant social club or some niche interest group. You're right in the middle of the action of what the one true and living God is doing in his world. You are joining in the biggest building project the world has ever seen, even if it won't be fully revealed until the end. So how do you throw yourself in? What does it look like to be a part of God's mission for the church? Well, there's a lot we could say, but from what Peter says in this passage here, it's simple, really. God's church is to show the world how great God is by singing his praises and by living his way. So let's think first about singing God's praises. Verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. In our society, which is obsessed with production and consumption, where economic efficiency is a god, where activities that don't have a measurable output are often seen to be a waste of time, it can seem like gathering like this in church to worship God is an irrelevance. The economist might ask us, what good are you, 50, 60, 70 people, doing this Sunday evening? How are you contributing to society as you gather here in church? Well, I can think of a number of goods that this gathering contributes to our society, but that's not the point, really, because contributing to society, loving our neighbours, while it's vitally important, is still only the second most important thing in life. We were created to worship God, to sing his praises. And so when God rescues us out of slavery and sin and brings us to himself... He rescues us so that we can worship him, which means that the heart of the church's mission in the world is to be a worshipping people, a people who proclaim God's excellencies, as Peter puts it, in the midst of a watching world, who declare God's glory in a world that suppresses the truth about him. C.S. Lewis once wrote that the world is full of praise, and I think he's onto a real insight here. Uh, You think about it as you walk down the street, as you sit in cafes, as you chat with your friends. There is praise all over the place. Husbands praising wives, sports fans praising their favourite teams, readers praising good books, watchers praising excellent movies, students praising their schools and universities sometimes, stamp collectors praising their favourite stamps. People praise all sorts of things that they think are excellent and praiseworthy. And God's purpose in building the church is to cover his world with communities of people who sing his praises because he is the most praiseworthy. That's central to why God planted this church here in Epping, so that there would be a community of people here who declare his excellencies. It's central to why God planted the church down the road in Beecroft and in Cherrybrook and in Chatswood. And it's central to why I believe it's God's will to plant a new church in Hornsby. Because in planting churches all over the globe, God is filling his world with communities of people who declare his excellencies, who sing his praises. 
Of course, God didn't just redeem us to declare his excellencies in our gathered worship on Sundays. He redeemed it to do it as part of our daily life, over coffee or lunch, at the sidelines of the sporting match, in our Facebook posts, in our contributions to public discussion. We've been rescued to be a people who sing God's praises and who call on other people to join in praising God too. John Piper puts this really well in thinking about the mission of the church when he says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. This is the first paragraph actually in a book on mission. (laughs) And you pick it up and you're thinking you're going to learn about mission and the first thing he says is, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. I think he's right. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. You see what he's saying? When we tell the good news about Jesus, when we call on other people to repent of their sins and trust in him, what we're doing is we're calling on them to to stop giving other things the highest praise in their lives and to join us in praising God who is most praiseworthy. If you go to one of the footy grand finals around this time of year, and perhaps some of you are, the sheer energy and the power of the thing can be overwhelming. You can be caught up in the excitement of the match, and it's a great thing. But when you come to church the next day, it can feel like church is small and weak, can't it? It can feel like the thing they're praising over there is so much bigger than what we're praising in here. And so you've got to remember that church each week is, in one sense, choir practice for the real event that is still coming. And that God has little pockets of choirs practicing not just here in Epping, not just down the road, but in every corner of the globe. Little pockets of his great choir that he's training and gathering to join together at the great final day when Jesus comes. And there'll be a vast multitude of people from every tribe and people and language and tongue, singing God's praises because he is the most praiseworthy. And so when we declare God's praises, when we call on others to join us in doing it, we're rehearsing for that great day. We're getting ready to play our part in that stupendous choir that will last for eternity. But that's only part of the job. There's a second part to the mission of the church that we see here, which is the church shows the world how great God is by singing his praises and by living his way. Look at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, God's strategy for displaying his glory in the world is not bigger buildings or flashier websites or glossier marketing. There may be some place for some of those things sometimes, but God's strategy is none of those things. The real action in the spiritual battle is the good lives of God's people. And make no mistake, this is a spiritual battle. Did you hear what Peter said? Abstain from sinful desires because they wage war against your soul. You see, there's a lie out there in Australian society and elsewhere around the world that says 
True humanity is found in self-actualization, in expressing yourself, in giving way to every and any desire. That's how you'll become more fully human. So in our society, to say no to any desire, no matter what it is, is to repress yourself. And you'll cause yourself damage if you do that, so it's said. And so those who advocate any kind of self-denial are to be silenced because what they say is evil. You've heard that kind of line around? Well, the truth is the sinful desires that we all experience wage war against our souls. It's them that corrupt us and distort us and dehumanise us. And God has rescued us out of darkness. He's brought us into his light. He set us free from that corruption. And he's at work in us by his spirit to straighten us out, to help us stand tall, to make us fully human. And so the church is called, in the strength of God's spirit, to live such good lives among those who don't yet know God that even when they speak against us as evildoers, they'll see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, God's design is that the world should look in on the church and see the way the church does things, just like the nations were meant to look in on Israel and see the way, things, the way that Israel did things. The world's meant to look in on the church and say the way they do things in there, it's strange, it's weird, I can't get my head around it, but there's something attractive about it. The way they forgive those who hurt them, it's amazing. The way they love their enemies, the way they welcome children and respect the age, the way they keep sex for marriage, the way they give away their money, the way they're patient with those who are socially awkward, (laughs) the way they do things in there in the church, it's different from how we do things out here. It's weird, but but there's something about it that's good. The world's meant to look in on the church and wonder why we live that way. And then, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, the world is meant to ask questions of why we live the way we do. Ask us for a reason for the hope that we have. And it's then, in that context, that we can tell them the story about what God has done to save us in Jesus. There's a wonderful scene in C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe. I don't know if you know it, perhaps you've read the book or you've seen the movie. Uh, where the Pevensey kids go through the wardrobe and into the magical world of Narnia, where the wicked white witch has cast her evil spell over the land uh, and where it's always overcast and where it's cold and icy, where it's always winter but never Christmas. And the Pevensey kids are walking along in this scene with the beavers, as it turns out, and there's another party walking along, the wicked white witch herself with one of her henchmen, a dwarf, and both groups start to notice what's going on. The skies opened up and blue skies appeared and the sun is shining and the snow's starting to melt and the ice is beginning to thaw and the rivers are starting to flow and little pockets of green grass are appearing under the snow and flowers are popping up and the birds are starting to sing. And the dwarf, noticing all of this, says to the wicked white witch, there's something going on here, there's there's a thaw. And the wicked white witch, who knows better, says, no, this is no thaw, I tell you. This is Aslan's doing." This is spring. You see, what she's realised is that Aslan, who's the God figure, the Jesus figure, is on the move. And that when he is at work, her spell is over. The winter that never produced Christmas is coming to an end because Aslan is on the move and he's making things new. 
and there are little pockets of green, little pockets of life appearing in her cold, dark world, which spell the end for her. And you see, the church is like those little pockets of green in a cold, dark world. Little pockets of life. Little pockets of life. And God is planting churches all around the globe as little pockets of his renewing work where he's making people new and making them whole as they're united to Jesus. So here's my question for you. How many unbelievers see the insides of your church's life? How many people see the insides of your relationships with other Christians? Too often we in the church live in a Christian ghetto, don't we? Our relationships with Christians are, seem to be sometimes hermetically sealed from our relationships with non-Christians. But Peter assumes here that we'll live good lives among those who don't yet know God so that they will see our good deeds. So how visible is your church's life? And if it's not very visible, how can you open it up to let the world in, to see what God is doing here? Sometimes when I say that, people get nervous. (laughs) They say, but if we let them see what's happening in here, they'll see our sin as well. They'll see our life warts and all. And the response to that, of course, is, well, if they see our sin, they'll also see the saviour to whom we turn with our sin. And what could be better than that? You see, when we live good lives among those who don't yet know God, especially when we're under fire, that's when unbelievers will begin to ask us for a reason that, for the hope that we have. And we'll be able to answer them with gentleness and respect and to tell them about Jesus, the precious cornerstone, rejected by men but chosen by God. So do you want to be part of something big? Do you want to be right at the centre of the action? Well, don't opt out of the church and its mission, but throw yourself in because God is building his church. It's his new temple, his most magnificent building progress. It's his new humanity. It's the means that God has chosen to display his glory in the world. And because it's God's building project, it's not going to stall halfway through. He will complete his work. Remember that vision that God gave to the Apostle John right at the end of the book of Revelation? The vision of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God? It's the holy city which looks very much like a new temple, which has the names of the sons of Israel on its gates and the names of the 12 apostles on its foundations. It's a new temple, but it's built out of a renewed humanity. And apart from God himself on the throne, it's the most glorious thing you've ever seen. You see, right here, right now, the church may look small and weak and insignificant. And it's going to be that way until Jesus comes. But make no mistake, the church is, in fact, the largest, most significant, most powerful project the world has ever seen. To be part of God's church is to be right in the middle of the action. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for picking us up and building us into the walls of your spiritual house. We thank you for rescuing us out of darkness and bringing us into your marvellous light. We thank you for taking us who are not a people and making us your people, for us who did not know mercy and showing us mercy. And we pray, Father, that you would give us strength by your spirit to sing your praises 
and to live such good lives among those who don't yet know you, that they would see our good deeds and glorify you on the day that you come to judge. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.